In the name of God, Creator and Redeemer and Giver of life. set out in 1979 to provide family therapy services and a parish-based volunteer scheme which was open to all the community. It was actually the first family therapy agency set up in New Zealand that was part, as part of Anglican Social Services in the heart of which is what the family centre is. Uh, there were other people doing family therapy, but this was the first agency set up to do it. So prior to that, people used to do therapy or counselling with individuals or couples and not involve children and broader extended family. So there was no one to teach us really in New Zealand, so we read books and um, uh, particularly uh, American and European books and worked with families and learned how to do it. Soon uh, this had become a bit of a fad, more and more psychologists and counsellors and people like that were wanting to do family therapy. So we were being asked and contracted around the country to teach it. So within six months of learning it ourselves, we were teaching it. And so we had to reflect on what we were doing uh, quite rigorously, uh, which you had to do if you had to teach. At the end of the first year, um, we were feeling quite confident because we'd had an evaluation brand new agency and uh, so a person came in from Massey University to do an independent evaluation of the work of the family. So we've seen by this stage about 70 to 100 families, I can't remember the exact number. And uh, this chap doing his masters uh, interviewed all the families that we had seen and the results were very encouraging. So at the end of the first year we were feeling very confident we were solvent, and then when you start a new organisation, you don't know whether you can pay the salaries or whatever. So uh, we were solvent. Uh, there was a lot of professional interest in our work, and the evaluation indicated that families in trouble were really helped by the work that we did. So we went into our third retreat. We used to have retreats every um, uh, six months for about two to five days at that time. And in those retreats, we used the Paolo Freire methodology, action reflection methodology, um, where we tried to make ourselves rigorously accountable to each other, so put our egos aside and really be able to look at what we're doing and critique what we're doing together. So this was the third retreat at the beginning of the second year. And after much soul searching, we realised that there was a danger that our therapy could be addressing symptoms and not the causes of people's misery. That we actually were addressing their presenting problems, like they were getting depressed or they were having antisocial behaviour or there was lots of conflicts or there was some psychotic uh, problems that people were having. And when we tracked those problems, this was in the 1980s when there was a lot of social and economic restructuring, and when we track those problems, uh, very often the origin of them was when people became made unemployed and they couldn't get jobs or they uh, couldn't afford to pay their rent or defaulted on a mortgage. And the stress of that led to a lot of these things. Now that wasn't for everybody, but it was for a lot of people. 
And by not addressing that broader social, those broader social and economic drivers, we may be making, in the therapy we thought, making people happy in poverty. In other words, relieving their depression, making them feel good, but not addressing the root causes. So we decided to really change what we were doing. And that was the time we were a group of Park uh, Alabrus, and so uh, we decided that the real pain in the community was in the Maori and Pacific communities. So we started to employ Maori and Pacific workers. We developed a community development, went to our work, and of course it, that eventuated into social policy research. And eventually we formed a three tikanga organisation um, with joint leadership Maori, Pacific, and Pākehā. The focus of the early 1980s was on unemployment, housing, and cultural inequities, as well as treaty work, decolonisation work, Pākehā. The lesson was that good therapy always shows a lot of love, but love without justice can prolong people's pain. You solve an immediate problem, but you don't solve things long term, they'll be back. We were unwittingly silencing their voices, allowing them to blame themselves, as people often do for being unemployed, or unable to pay rent, for example. So we were unintentionally adjusting people to society's norms because we weren't addressing these, these bigger issues in, at, at, at that time. And, uh, and, and so we decided we needed to change that. And we developed a therapy to address these broader causes that focused on cultural, gender, and socioeconomic context. And we taught people um, how to empower themselves with we called this Just Therapy. We wrote a book and published a lot of papers on it, and eventually we were contracted all around the world, every continent of the world, in fact, to teach and, uh, this particular analysis, and it's had some effect with all of that. A therapy where justice and love, or love and justice, always went hand in hand. Now, I've told the story because in our gospel today, the leader of the synagogue in St. Luke's story exercised justice without love. In a sense, this is the opposite to what we did, because what we did was exercising love with these families without justice. I'll come back to that later. Jesus was teaching, presumably in a village, when he noticed a disabled woman. Her disability affected her legs, as it says, she was quite bent over and unable to stand up. There is no mention that she was asking for healing, as happened in most of the other gospel stories. It simply says, Jesus saw her, called her over, and said, Woman, you are set free from your, from your ailment. He then laid hands on her, and immediately she stood up and began to praise God. As you would, I might add. The leader of the synagogue was indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath. He knew the rules, and they said people were to rest on the Sabbath. And he got really worked up about this, because it says he kept saying to the crowd, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, not on the Sabbath. He wasn't against healing. It was all about the Sabbath. Now that seems strange to us. 
But he was actually doing something that we all do at times. He was doing what he thought was culturally right. He thought it was just, and it was an actual fact the law. I've spoken before about the fear people had after returning from exile right through to Jesus' ministry. Many of them thought that if they broke the covenant and offended against God, Israel would end up in exile again. So they developed these very strict laws around all the commandments in the Old Testament so that everyone knew in every situation what they could and could not do. There were, for example, 39 categories of work you couldn't do on the Sabbath. These were subcategorized into, for example, <coughs> the order of bread, uh, which included planting, plowing, reaping, and a whole range of other things. The order of garments, which included laundering, dyeing, spinning, and a whole lot of other things. And there were other categories and numerous subcategories. The leader of the synagogue in the story, in my view, genuinely believed Jesus was putting people at risk because he was breaking the law. He was acting well within the norms of that society, even though strict Sabbath laws seem strange to us. From Jesus' perspective, he, that's the leader of the was exercising justice without love. The problem, as our Lord saw it, was that this woman had been seriously disabled and bent over for 18 years. Surely the rules can't prevent her from being made well. He said, this is hypocrisy, to try and stop health, well-being and ability in the name of a rule that was designed to do something else. Don't you take your animals to the water on the Sabbath? He asked, searchingly. And shouldn't this woman be freed from bondage on the Sabbath day? He was a master of observation and logic. It says, when he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things he was doing. Why? Because he was exercising justice with love. He was bringing the two values together. Now please don't think this is a simple ancient story. We do what the leader of the synagogue did. And we do it often. We do it whenever we consider our norms are the measurement of assessment for everyone else. Men do it constantly to women. We, if I can use the collective of manhood, often think stereotypically, before we become a little more enlightened, I may hasten to add. Stereotypically, we can think that women are too emotional, get distracted by the wrong details, are weaker, and less able to lead. So that sets up a prejudicial assessment criteria, which women often, often have to overcome to get jobs, to get recognition, or in some cases to even gain acceptance. This, in essence, is what the leader of the synagogue do. Heterosexuals do it to the rainbow community constantly. Parker do it to Maori and Pacific people. Older people do it to younger people, and younger people do it to older people. We are all guilty. We judge others by our own norms. And we all feel shameful when we look back on many of our assumptions in the past 
I do hope we've all had experiences of hard learnings whereby we had to dismantle our prejudices. That is, the accepted rules of engagement we were brought up with and thought were fair, and simply give those up and love the other person. The call of the gospel is to progressively abandon the sort of position and assumptions the leader of the synagogue took, justice without love, and start regularly adopting the position Jesus took of justice and love always working together. His challenge wasn't about uh, abandoning the Sabbath. It was about understanding the point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a progressive piece of legislation in the ancient Near East that gave people a rest every seven days from work in the tough conditions of the ancient world. But various religious leaders had turned it into an ordeal with extreme rules. Now let me be clear that this is not a story about Jews doing bad things and Christians doing good things. We have our share of legalists in the Christian church, as all religions do. And Jewish communities often have some of the most loving people around, as other religions do. It's about dealing to our assumed values and progressively adopting the unhypocritical position Jesus outlined of exercising justice and love together. Now the example I used of the family centre in its early days was the opposite, as I have said. It wasn't justice without love. It was love without justice. We were helping people, but we weren't addressing the social and economic failures in society that created their problems. <clears throat> they may have become less depressed, but they thought the problem was within them or their family. They still blame themselves for being unemployed or unable to afford decent housing. It was unbalanced therapy because it did not have the justice piece operating alongside the love piece. Jean's sermon last week addressed the problem of love without justice in our families. Sometimes our families are so busy being nice to each other that they don't want to rock the boat when someone needs to speak up or do something. Something bad could be happening to a child. Someone in the family could be being victimized or ridiculed. Someone may need financial resources which we could give. And the family could help other families who may or, or may not be um, in need if they rally together. The point of all this is that justice and love should always go together. Love without justice is mushy, and justice without love is heartless and will quite often be inappropriate and hurtful. So part of our pilgrimage in this life is to become progressively aware of when we're acting like the leader of the synagogue and simply operating from our own assumptions about life. We need to stop, reflect, and adopt a love and justice position. This is my take on the earthquake, drop, cover, and hold. I'm going to ask you to repeat this in a second. Stop, reflect, adopt the justice and love position. Likewise, if we are being loving at the emotional level with people and not understanding or responding to their struggles in life when they have them, we should also become progressively aware of these situations and stop. Stop, reflect, 
address, uh, sorry, stop to remain adopted justice position. Can we say that? Stop to remain adopted justice position. Justice and love position. Sorry, I need to learn it properly myself. Jesus' total ministry actually was about justice and love to God and to each other. It's a great rule of thumb. It's a challenge, but it's also a wonderful way to live.